Um, I'm not sure if the peer-to-patent system would necessarily slow down or, or accelerate the process. I think it just makes it a better process. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. We're glad you could listen today. Uh, I'm coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, Craig Williams, uh, who normally joins us from the West Coast, is not going to be with us today. Uh, I'd like to extend a, a special thanks to our sponsors who helped make this show possible, Clio, the web-based practice management software, and Landy Insurance. Uh, well, uh Today we're going to talk a little bit about an innovative program uh, designed to help, uh, perhaps help uh, uh, improve uh, the patent approval process in this country. uh, It's said that the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has been overwhelmed, has an estimated backlog of more than a million patent applications. Uh, A new idea was born combining knowledge sharing with a global community on the internet rather than relying entirely on patent examiners, the patent approval system under this new idea would use crowdsourcing to help vet patent applications. Uh, it's an interesting idea. It's called the peer-to-patent system. It was originally the brainchild of uh, Professor Beth Novick uh, at New York Law School, who's currently on leave from that position to serve as the Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Open Government in the White House. Uh, uh, we had spoken to her and invited her on the program, but she could not be with us today. Uh, it's been in a pilot program for the last two years in collaboration with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, and uh, a new report analyzing the uh, system was recently published and authored by uh, our first guest uh, today and a colleague to Professor Novick, uh, Professor Mark Webink, who is executive director of the Center for Patent Innovations a research and development arm of New York Law School's Institute for Intellectual Law and Property. Uh, Professor Webink's work focuses on harnessing social networks, and utilizing web-based technology to improve patent systems globally. Uh, Professor Webink was formerly the Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Red Hat, the premier Linux and open source vendor. He's an expert on the U.S. patent system and on the need for reform of the patent system. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Mark Webbing. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be here. And also joining us today to give her perspective on this is Stephanie Scruggs, uh, a, uh, as I understand it, newly minted partner at the law firm of Hanafi and King in Washington, D.C. Uh, Ms. Scruggs' practice primarily focuses on patent litigation, patent prosecution, and product clearance and patent validity opinions. Uh, And she also works in trademark prosecution and counseling, patent licensing, due diligence associated with IP transfers. She regularly appears before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Stephanie Scruggs. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Well, uh, 
Mark Webeck, I want to start with you, uh, but I wonder, before we talk about the peer-to-patent system, I wonder if we could uh, maybe go back a couple of years and have you address uh, what what the need was that you hoped to address from the, through this system. Was, was, was there something broke in the patent office that needed fixing? Well, I, I think you could could better phrase it as uh, some improvements that could be made. Uh, some might characterize it as broken in part, but over the last uh, two decades or so, the patent office has faced some new challenges as new technologies have entered the patent system, including uh, software and, more recently, business methods. And the challenges came because those technologies, uh, having not been a part of the patent system previously, did not have an accumulation of what's known as prior art, uh, documentation evidencing pre-existing inventions. Uh, prior art may be in the form of, a, of an existing patent or patent application, but it also could be a journal article, uh, a piece of software code, or something else that predates the claimed invention. Uh, and because those things resided <laughs> sort of in the out in the public, but not in a uh, pre-established database that the examiners could access, when they first started out, they uh, they faced some challenges in terms of finding the best prior art. And the other thing that happened was the the extent of filing in these new technology areas began to expand rapidly in the late 1990s and on into the 21st century. And there was a lack of examiners. Uh, They were being overwhelmed by the amount of work that was coming in in these particular technological areas. And as a result, some in the industry, in the IT industry especially, felt that some patents were getting issued that perhaps were not uh, fully meritorious. In other words, if the examiner had had all the prior art in front of them, they probably would have rejected the patents. And so the idea was not to change the entire system, but to find a way to make sure that examiners had the best and fullest information in front of them when they were doing their examination. And Stephanie, uh, again, before we move on to talking more about the peer-to-patent system itself. Uh, I mean, do you, do you share that perception of, of the state of affairs, say, a, a couple of years ago? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, for the most part, when an examiner examines an application, uh, the database, even if it's not in the computer field, if it's chemical or biotech, it usually is, is limited to a um, patents or patent publications and doesn't really expand into the area of the non-patent literature as much as it should. Um, and so the, the scope of what the examiner actually has in front of him while he's examining applications could be a lot less than what it should be. And so then you might have some patents issuing that uh, are not as uh, strong, I would say, as others um, if the whole scope of the references out there could have been examined at the time. Did I understand? I, I read something in connection with this that suggested that patent examiners actually have a, a, a time limit in terms of how much they could time they can spend on a, on, on a particular application. I mean, is that is that a something that that's imposed on them, or is that just a matter of uh, of necessity out of given the workload that they have? Well, it's uh, yeah, much much like the uh, our medical professionals who have to see a, a, a fixed number of patients every day. 
patent examiners are, are under pressure to move their workload along, and they are generally given about 18 to 20 hours to complete a full examination of a patent. All right, well, let's, let's turn to the peer-to-patent system. And, uh, Mark, tell us how this uh, was intended to address this situation. Well, as, as Steph mentioned, uh, the question was, how do we get this uh, both patent literature, but more likely non-patent literature, journal articles, software, other things, in front of the examiner so that they have the full benefit of that knowledge as well when they're examining the patents? Uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, our patent examiners are limited in the databases that they can look at. And so if they want to look beyond those, they either have to turn to a central office at the patent and a trademark office to do the search for them, or they're relying either on the applicant or third parties to find that prior art. And we haven't historically made it terribly easy for third parties to submit prior art uh, and so the idea behind peer to pat was take published applications, uh, and th- that means these applications have typically been uh, in the patent office for a minimum of, of 18 months. When they publish, post them to the peer to patent site, and then invite citizen experts who know something about that area of technology to have a discussion among themselves about w- the, the nature of the patent what the claims are, and where we might find prior art. They then suggest that prior art, identify it adequately so that we can be certain that it's authentic. And finally, that peer group then rates that prior art, sort of stack ranks it and says, we think this is the best and then this is the next best. We gather that together up to 10 pieces of prior art, Uh, and then file it as what's called an information disclosure statement with the Patent and Trademark Office. And then after the examiner has completed his or her own search of of prior art, they then also look at the prior art that has been suggested through the peer review system. And by doing this, they get to see, uh, you know, what is it that they may have missed? Uh, The the one advantage uh, that the, the examiners have perceived out of this is in peer-to-patent, these peer reviewers get to comment on the prior art and suggest why it's relevant, whereas in the traditional submission process for third parties, they can't. All they can do is submit the prior art, and they leave it up to the examiner to figure out why it's relevant. Now, this launched two years ago, as I understand it, uh, as a pilot project with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, what's happened during those two years, and, and where are we today? Well, the first year... Um, we started off with a goal of having up to 250 applications with no more than 15 applications from any one applicant and bringing those in front of the peer reviewers to, to determine whether we could find peer reviewers who could contribute. That first year, we had about 75 applications come in, which was a little bit lower than what we had hoped for, um, but the peer reviewers were effective, and in about one in four cases, they were able to contribute non-patent literature that was relevant to the examination. The second year, we expanded the scope of the uh, applicant pool beyond software, which was included in the first year, to include business methods in the second year, increased the limits to 400 total and up to 25 from any one applicant, and then uh, 
in December of the second year, which was about halfway through the second year, the patent office started sending out notices to applicants, letting them know that they were eligible. Up to that point, it had been pretty much up to a small group of students at New York Law School to to go and uh, beat the bushes for applicants. Um, As a result of the PTO mailing, uh, all of a sudden, the number of applications coming in uh, started to increase dramatically. And by the end of the second year, we had processed approximately 230 applications. In fact, we're still processing the last 50 of those right now. What was especially pleasing in the second year was that ratio of about one uh, out of every four applications for which we found relevant prior art held up. So what we experienced the first year, we also experienced the second year. What this tells us is that we're making a contribution, you know, at the margin, admittedly, because first of all, the examiners do a pretty good job on their own in finding prior art, but what we're helping them do is close that last 20% gap. And our peer reviewers, uh, we found, were highly effective in doing that. Uh, and, and I want to bring Stephanie in this, into this. I just want to clarify, we, what what is the status now? I, I read uh, in, in your annual report that, that the program is on hold while the USPTO uh, considers uh, whether to continue it. Is that the current state of That's affairs? Correct. Well, it's on hold from the standpoint that as of June 15th, the window for new applications closed. At that time, we still had about 75 applications in process, and we're working our way through those now. We will complete the review on the remainder of those by mid to late October. Um, In the meantime, with the recent appointment of Dave Kapos to be the new director of the PTO, we're looking forward to working with Dave and his senior staff in evaluating the program determining which aspects of the program contributed the most, and then making a determination of whether the program can continue to be delivered uh, in a, in a cost-effective manner uh, such that it's persuasive for the PTO then to adopt the program directly. Yeah, well, I just wanted to bring Stephanie into the, into the conversation. Stephanie, you're, you're, a, you're a practitioner uh, at the USPTO. What, what is, from where you stand, uh, What's your perspective on this program? What's, uh, you know, do you see uh, the benefits of it? Have you seen the impact of it? Uh, I haven't seen the impact of it uh, yet, just because I do um, primarily a lot of chemical and mechanical work and that it hasn't been really opened up into those uh, disciplines. But overall, I view the process as a positive. I mean, you know, the purpose of the patent system is to obviously reward innovation, um, and no one is going to be served well by issued patents that cover subject matter that was already known. Um, So anything that strengthens the validity of the patents that issue from the patent office, I I think should be welcomed by the patent community. Um, I guess from a litigation standpoint, any patent holder that wants to assert his patent and, you know, obviously spent a lot of money probably obtaining that patent and, and going to spend a lot of money maintaining it, they want some comfort that the minute they set foot in a courtroom, that the patent's not going to be found invalid because of some for example, non-patent literature that the examiner didn't consider um, just because, you know, may not have been able to uncover it at the time. And then on the flip side, if you're accused of infringement, you don't necessarily want to spend time and money defending yourself based on a patent that may not have uh, 
had the prior art considered while it was being examined and probably shouldn't have ever issued. So, uh, you know, all in all, again, anything that would strengthen the validity of a patent should be viewed as a positive, and I think it's just an improvement to the process. Like like Mark said, the examiners do a good job, um, but this just helps them do their job and make sure they're considering everything that they need to be considering. Two of the long-term benefits that Steph has, uh, has identified, one, we would hope that in the long term the cost of litigation is reduced because there's greater certainty about the validity of the patents. And secondly, if the validity is far more certain, it, it will more than likely encourage discussions around licensing at an earlier stage and make the, the valuation determinations of those licenses uh, much easier. And so overall, the patent holder benefits by having greater certainty the patent infringer actually benefits from not wasting a lot of time and effort defending in a case where they can achieve a, a, a more reasonable outcome in, that's quicker. And to the extent the costs are reduced, the public in, at large, the consumers of products that embody these patents should benefit. Well, I mean, it sounds like, if I'm hearing you, this, this uh, program is addressing perhaps two different issues. One is, one is the examiner's access to information, and the other is, is simply, the I guess, the workload of the examiners to some extent. Uh, I mean, Stephanie, from, from your perspective as a practitioner, is this are there, are there other ways to get at these problems that, that the USPTO should also be considering? Is this a, a, a reasonable way to address this by, by kind of crowdsourcing the problem? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a very valid way to go about it. I mean, right now there's the ability for a third party uh, to submit references, like Mark mentioned, to the examiner during the examination of the application. Now, unfortunately, that the ability to do that, it comes with a fee, and it also has a finite time with which you can do that. Um, so unless you're really watching an application and you're very interested in it, you may miss your window, or you may not have the money associated uh, with the fees that you need to submit this prior art. And then again, you can't comment on any of that prior art that you're submitting, so the examiner's left figuring out why the art that you've submitted might be relevant. Um, you know, so so the the peer to patent review process is actually uh, kind of combining the third party submission that we already have the ability to do, and then also we have the ability on the back end after a patent is issued to seek reexamination of a patent, where you can actually, as a third party, be involved. Um, it's called inter parties reexam. So it's kind of combining both of those concepts. It's just doing it more at the front end. And it's making it, uh, you know, a little bit more transparent, obviously, um, so that people can get involved. And you're getting the, hopefully, the true people uh, that that really know the art. You know, the engineers and uh, the technical advisors, the researchers that are really involved in that art that will know uh, the references that are out there, the presentations that have been made. And they're just helping the examiner uncover something that the examiner may not have the ability to find right away. Mark, who are the uh, peer reviewers in these cases? Where do they come from? What are their qualifications? Uh, a substantial percentage of the peer reviewers are individuals with technical expertise, uh, I believe about 70% of our peer reviewers are either engineers or software technologists, uh, and a high percentage of those actually had uh, a uh, advanced degree beyond a bachelor's degree. 
they are individuals who are contributing their time. Uh, quite frequently, they're going to work for a competitor of the applicant so that they're uh, taking a look at the uh, application from the eyes of a party that may be precluded from practicing that invention in the future. And if they're going to be precluded, they, they have a vested interest to make sure that the what, what gets granted is only what the applicant merits, not something broader than that. So it's been an interesting process in that we, in fact, encourage competitors to look at the patents, not discourage them from doing so. Are, are they vetted in any way, the, the peer reviewers? No, the, the, the system is purely voluntary. Um, we have had different sponsors who have taken different approaches with their own employees. Uh, a good example would be uh, IBM, the company that Dave Kappas, the new director, is coming from. Uh, IBM actually encouraged their employees to participate with uh, two caveats. One, you participate on your own time, not company time. And two, uh, feel free to critique anybody else's patents, but don't critique IBM's own patents. Uh, for reasons that I think would be uh, fairly obvious in terms of uh, raising questions about what has been disclosed at the PTO with respect to their own patents. We're going to take a short break right now. Stay with us, and we'll be back uh, in just a moment to talk more about the peer-to-patent system. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Right from the beginning... You know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and it really felt like if I'm that well taken care of it, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is, is away today, unable to be with us today. Uh, we'd like to welcome back Professor Mark Webbing, Executive Director of the Center for Patent Innovations, a research and development arm of New York Law School's Institute for Intellectual Law and Property, and also Attorney Stephanie Scruggs, a partner with the firm of Hanafi and King in Washington, D.C. And we're talking about uh, the peer-to-patent system, the uh, program that's 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 crowdsourcing the patent uh, review process in cooperation with the U.S. Patent Trademark Office. Uh, Stephanie, from from where you stand as a as a practitioner, 
you, you've, your, your comments so far have, have been positive about this, but is there anything that worries you about it or troubles you about it, uh, whether about this program or about this, this sort of concept of, of crowdsourcing a government function at all? Well, I, I think, um, you know, something that Mark just said in terms of possibly IBM's um, attempt to get their employees involved um, you know, the, the system is going to be only as good as the reviewers, and, and if it's on a voluntary basis, obviously it needs to be on a voluntary basis, but um, you, you need to have reviewers there that are reviewing uh, every application to the extent that, um, you know, you can't have one application that has uh, a huge group of reviewers and then 20 other applications that people just aren't interested in. Uh, and I'm not really sure how to go, how, you know, the system would go about it uh, to make that work. You know, you look at the pilot program, there's some applications that have a larger community than others. Uh, so then that also brings up the question, you know, if we're talking about a more valid patent at the end result, does that make these patents that haven't been peer-reviewed viewed with a little bit more skepticism, both with, you know, the courts and also with potential infringers? Are they going to look at the patent and say, well, there were no reviewers, so obviously the examiner didn't really have uh, all the relevant prior art, um, and therefore the claims are a little bit more sketchy, I would say. Um, so there are some concerns in terms of how the the peer-to-peer patent system is actually going to continue to improve on the concept uh, and make sure that there's more publicity with the program to get more people involved in it and to make sure that uh, all the applications, if possible, actually have a community that's actually looking at them and submitting prior art if there is prior art out there. Mark, do you see those concerns as legitimate? And if so, uh, how, how would you see them being addressed? Uh, they are, I think it is a legitimate concern in terms of ensuring that you have enough participants in, uh, as far as peer reviewers, and that was one of the areas of focus in the second year. Much of that recruitment has been carried out by a group of law students, including students at New York Law School, but also Albany School of Law, uh, UCAL Berkeley School of Law, uh, Pace, Duke, North Carolina Central, uh, we actually pulled in law students from all over the country to help participate in that peer recruitment. What we ended up with is actually at the at the one end of the spectrum the, where little or no prior art was found, two different groups. One, we either didn't have anyone who expressed an interest in the application simply because it was in an area that people just didn't feel like they had any expertise or they looked at it and couldn't immediately find anything. Uh, and then the second was where we had a, a, a group of folks who were trying to find prior art and just couldn't. Uh, that's not a bad outcome either. Uh, what that should tell us is uh, the examiner doing their own search is likely to find all the relevant prior art on their own. So as, as I mentioned earlier in the show, this is not a program that's going to have an impact on every application. It's going to have an impact at the margins, but it will, we believe it will have a meaningful impact at that margin. And, and then the balancing act is, can the program be conducted at a cost-effective uh, level, uh, improving uh, at the margin? 
I have to ask, you're, you're the executive director of the Center for Patent Innovations. Uh, what else is coming down the pike? Are you looking at other ways of innovating the patent system? Well, we've, we've taken a couple of additional steps. One was to take uh, pretty much the same technology that we've used in peer-to-patent and launch a site called Post-Issue Peer-to-Patent that is focused on issued patents that have uh, either been asserted in litigation or threatened in litigation that are of concern, particularly, again, in the IT industry. Um, and some of these patents have been patents that are of concern to the area of software I came out of, the open source community. But some of them have been patents that have been asserted against companies like Microsoft and Google and Apple. Uh, and what we found is uh, when people have their attention drawn to these and, and focus as a group on them, they're again able to make a significant contribution in, in terms of finding new prior art that wasn't considered at the time of the examination. The results of those searches are then made publicly available both to the patent holder and to other parties who may have an interest in the, in the patents. Uh, the third project that we've got going right now is a project uh, funded by the National Science Foundation called Open Patent, and it's uh, focused on seeing whether adding a keyword and visualization technology to patent databases will help uh, both practitioners and non-practitioners better understand the nature of patents and define patents of interest. Stephanie, uh what about from where you sit? I mean, are are, are there areas that that, that stand out uh, to you, perhaps as as uh, particularly in need of innovation? And, and what do you think about some of the ideas that have been floated here today? Well, I, I would just echo what we talked about um, more toward the beginning of the show in terms of you know ending up with obviously the the process of getting a patent is usually long and drawn out. So anything that's going to help improve the time frame that it takes to get a patent is welcome. Um, I'm not sure if the peer-to-patent uh, system would necessarily slow down or, or accelerate the process. I think it just makes it a better process. Um, so, you know, the desired end result is obviously a patent, but the preferred end result is a patent that will survive its attack on validity. Um, so the peer-to-patent system is, is a great step, and if we can just put other steps uh, in, in the process to maybe expedite um, actually going through the examination process, uh, and again, um, I'm not quite sure of whether there are any steps right now that we're going to take. I think that uh, Mark talked about you know, looking at patents after the fact, uh, and especially ones that have already been asserted, um, that's definitely great, but it's after the the process of going through the examiner and examining the application. Um, so anything that will help to expedite the process and then to give you a more valid patent in the end is definitely welcome. One thing I would add is, uh, especially given the, the new leadership at the PTO, uh, I can tell you that Dave Kapos is looking for suggestions any ideas that practitioners like Stephanie have about what can we do to improve the system, make it faster, and make it more effective? Uh, he is uh, setting a very aggressive agenda in that in that regard. And do you have a timetable for when uh, a decision will be made about uh, the continuation of this program? 
Uh, my understanding is that the evaluation will be done uh, and we'll have some meetings to discuss it uh, this fall. Um, if it moves to a stage where the Patent and Trademark Office is going to adopt the technology and, and drive it directly, there will be, in all likelihood, some transition period. So what I'm anticipating is, assuming all of that goes well, that we will see the program uh, essentially relaunched sometime uh, probably in the second quarter of next year. Okay, we're, we're uh, getting just about out of time here, and I did want to give each of you an opportunity to kind of wrap up with your, your final thoughts. Uh, so uh, let me ask each of you to do that. Uh, and also, uh, at the same time, if you'd like, uh, tell our listeners how they can follow up with you, either uh, contact information or a website, uh, whatever you prefer to point them to. So, uh, Mark, let's start with you. Well, uh, again, Bob, thank you for being here. I've enjoyed talking with you and with Stephanie today. Um, we're excited about what we've accomplished to date uh, with the peer-to-patent program, but we're also looking forward to this evaluation period because it will give us a good deal of feedback that can be applied to other areas of government interaction in terms of improving decision-making. Um, we think uh, this, the, the process has been one that has been both creatively satisfying uh, and at the same time, from a, a standpoint of working with the PTO, uh, an enjoyable experience there as well. We've had a really good working relationship with the folks at the Patent and Trademark Office, and I want to thank them for all of their support along the way. And I know you have a, a website at peer2patent.org. Uh, right. And, and, and if uh, anyone wants to contact me, they can reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at peer2patent.org, and I will get their email. And I'll, I'll also mention to our listeners that that annual report we were discussing in the course of the program is available at that website in uh, PDF format. Uh, Stephanie Scruggs, you get the final word today. Oh, thanks, Bob. Uh, again, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed uh, looking at the peer-to-patent um, system and, and commenting on it, and I think it's definitely a great step to improve and enhance the uh, examination process. I think the one, um, the one comment that I would make is that the more improvements that we make to the process, uh, the more important it becomes for the people that are involved, the examiners, the attorneys, the inventors, um, for everybody to be very involved in the process, very knowledgeable, so we can uh, we can further it along and continue to to um, get these patents that are truly innovative and not have to look at patents with a skeptical eye. Um, and I, I think that in the end, we're going to have a system that that is just going to um, make everybody a lot more comfortable in terms of licensing and litigation and the costs related to the litigation. Um, if anybody wants to contact me, uh, you can visit our website at www.hanafee.com, and my email address is sds at hanafee.com. Well, thanks a lot uh, once again to both of our guests, Mark Webbink, the Executive Director of the Center for Patent Innovations uh, at New York Law School's Institute for Intellectual Law and Property, and Attorney Stephanie Scruggs, uh, partner with the firm of Hanafee & King in Washington, D.C. Uh, our listeners... Uh, a reminder they can find this and all of our programs at legaltalknetwork.com and uh, on iTunes. Thanks again to both of our guests and uh, look forward to another great program next week. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. 
Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.